Sometimes a brief formula can change the world. Early in the last century, Einstein did just that with E equals MC squared. But there's a formula in John's Gospel that's even more powerful. Four brief words. The Word became flesh. They describe an event so amazing, so daring, that it changes everything afterwards. We'll look at that phrase and the chapter from which it comes today on Groundwork. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And today on Groundwork, Scott, we're beginning a new series on the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. And we're going to do it in seven programs, which is a little bit maybe presumptuous or ridiculous because of what this Gospel contains. It has 21 chapters, so technically we'd have to cover three chapters per program, but unfortunately there's just going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to skip. Some of what we'll skip we've covered in other series here on Groundwork in the past, but we will have to keep moving even in seven programs to capture the majesty of John. The Gospel of John has been compared to a body of water, which some scholars have said, on the one hand, it's accessible enough that it's a shallow enough pool that a toddler could splash around safely. On the other hand, it has depths that could drown an elephant. And I think we'll see that in this series, both the stunning teachings that are right there and yet the depth that is behind them. And in a sense, seven is a pretty good number if you're going to tackle John and uh, you're not going to take two or three years to do so. Because seven occurs again and again, sort of symbolically almost. You almost have a feeling that John targeted that as a symbol of completeness or fullness or perfection. So there are, it's often said, seven miracles that John describes out of all the, must have been hundreds and hundreds of miracles Jesus performed. In fact, he even says toward the end of his gospel that he's been very selective in what he's presented. And John actually calls those miracles with a special word. He calls them signs. Right. They're like arrows that point you to the reality of the kingdom, the reality of Jesus, uh, the kingdom that is just right above our heads and always waiting to break in. So there are seven witnesses to Jesus. There are seven of the more famous of the I am sayings. And we should point out, Dave, that what John's gospel we think was written last, perhaps he was aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so he didn't just sort of repeat their structure. John contains no parables. There's not one. Jesus taught only in parables, we're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John doesn't include a single one, probably because he figured they were covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he does have what Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have, and that is the famous I am sayings. And many of those are developed in the course of long discourses of Jesus. So there's plenty of Jesus teaching, but as you say, Scott, no parables, but lots of in-depth chapter length, many, many verses of comment and development of Jesus' ideas. And the structure of John, we're going to look at John 1, and we're going to get to it in just a moment. That is the prologue. It also has an epilogue, which will be our final episode, John 21. In between, there are two sections. Chapters 2 through 12 are the Book of Signs. This is the real public ministry. 13 through 20, the Book of Glory. And that was more of Jesus' private teachings. But it begins with this prologue, Dave, in John chapter 1, very famous part of uh, a lot of worship services and lessons and carols even. It's a majestic prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. Now he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. But the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then we'll just jump down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right. Uh, You mentioned, Scott, Lessons and Carols. That's a famous service that churches all over the world now undertake to put on at Christmas time. Yeah. But it began at Cambridge University at King's College over, a little over 100 years ago. And each of those nine lessons sort of spreads through the Bible telling the story of redemption. And they get to this last lesson. It's always John 1. And it's introduced as St. John unfolds to us the mystery of the incarnation. Mm. And that's what really these verses say. We've, we've covered them in Groundwork programs before, but it's a mystery because, again, here's some of those depths that you can never plumb. You right. can never get to the bottom. That God is more than one person. There's God and there's also the Word who's God. And this same Word who is God became flesh. Right. We could point out too, Dave, that in what we read just a moment ago, this is almost like a song. It's like a poem. But John interrupts his own song at one point to talk about John the Baptist. And he goes out of his way to say, no, look, he, he, he's not the light. The light I'm talking about, that's not John the Baptist. He just came to witness. To... The reason was because by the time John wrote the gospel, there were still a lot of people who thought John the Baptist had been the Messiah. So he has to make clear, look, I'm talking about ultimately Jesus. His name won't come up till almost verse 17, but uh, he has to make it clear. Now, I'm not singing about John the Baptist. This is about the Word who was with God in the beginning. We, The Word is the Son of God, who's going to be referring to God as his Father extensively here in John's Gospel. And yet that eternal Word who created the whole universe— This sort of backfills for us what we understand happened in Genesis 1. This word is the one who did all the let there be, let there be, let there be language. And yet that word became flesh, a real human being, not a costume, not a disguise, not a deception, a real person. And it seems as though John chose that word flesh very deliberately because we speak of the incarnation. And again, we get these Latinate terms that comes from Latin. But it literally means in meatment. <laughs> right. At the heart of incarnation is carne meat. Right. So John wants to emphasize, look, this actually happened. Again, mystery. We we can't really fully wrap our minds around it. That the God who called all things into being became a little baby who cried and puked and had to be changed and wiped up and all the rest. But he did it for a very specific and special reason, and that's what we want to look at next. Well-told stories about changed hearts captivate us. We love stories about the mean or selfish person who realizes the error of their ways and becomes a beacon of good. In the Bible, Jacob starts out as a cunning and manipulative character who acts out of self-interest rather than caring for others. But God still loves him. 
The book of Genesis shows how God pursued and softened Jacob's heart until he eventually understood that God's blessing comes by grace alone. Join today in October for a devotional series titled, Jacob Changed by God's Grace. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork, and this the first episode of a planned seven-part series covering the entire Gospel of John. And Dave, we've just uh, been in the prologue of John chapter 1, and the uh, center of that prologue, verse 14, this eternal word who created the entire cosmos in the beginning was made meat, was made a true human being. And John wants us to know that he's a true human being. Interestingly, Dave, one of the earliest heresies in the church was something called docetism, which was the heresy that said that Jesus was only divine but not really human. The human human part was like a costume or disguise. He was like Superman pretending to be the mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent, but he really wasn't. But Johns wants to say, no, Jesus was as human as anybody you've ever met. Yeah, absolutely. And I like to think of what we see in the Gospels, the first three Gospels in particular of the humanity. You know, nobody in the Gospels, in any of them, ever came up to Jesus and said, say, you're not really a human being, are you? You're just pretending. No, he exhibited all the traits of our common humanity. He could be tired. He could have emotions. He was hungry. He was thirsty. All of them, the Bible says, except for sin. In all other respects, he was one of us. And uh, and yet, uh, this bombshell, this formula, this E equals MC squared in spiritual terms, the word became flesh. And John adds, then, his word of witness, we beheld his glory, glory as of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that sort of sends your mind elsewhere in the Gospels. You think of the story of the uh, Transfiguration, when John and his brother James and Peter were with Jesus on, on the mountain, and suddenly the veil was dropped, and they could see the glory of his divinity shine through just for a moment as a kind of a preview. Glory is an important word in John. We'll come back to it in future programs. Yeah, in fact, the next program, we'll see it crops up in some surprising contexts. But you're right, Dave. Nobody nobody struggled to believe he was a real human being. It was figuring that he was God. That was the—he was so human that to say, well, he's actually also completely God, that was the tough part for the disciples. They didn't have any doubts uh, that—I mean, they just spent too much time with him to doubt that he was a human being. Later, they would begin to think— I think there's more to him than that. In fact, eventually they concluded it was correct to worship him, which would be idolatry if he wasn't really God. We are still tempted to docetism. I mean, sometimes even in – I've had it. I don't know if you've had it, Dave. If in some of my sermons, if I – talked about Jesus in just a little bit too earthy of terms, people get squeamish. They don't really like that, you know? They don't want to think about Jesus needing to brush his teeth because he got some parsley stuck between his incisors. That's just a little bit too common. We still, you know, tend toward he's only divine, not really human, but he has to be both to save us. If you ask what he came for, we'll look at maybe the supreme purpose of Jesus' life in the next segment, but For now, let's take note of the fact that, yes, he came to show us what God is like. He really was God, even though he put on human flesh, he took on a true and full and complete human nature. He still, in his character, is a revelation of the Father. In fact, Jesus would say later 
speaking to Thomas, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. But at the same time, I think it's only uh, fitting to say he came to show us what a real person is like, what a true human being ought to be. And it's interesting, too, uh, that in the verse you read there, that he's the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And uh, our friend Neil Plantinga uh, has pointed out that uh, Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he was the only one, because most of us have a hard time getting both things up and running simultaneously. Some people are full of grace. They're so nice, they would never say a harsh word to anybody, they, but they're kind of wishy-washy. Uh, some people are so full of truth, you wish they'd just be quiet. You yeah, know? I mean, right. did you like my cake? No, that was terribly dry. It was terrible. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, they, they're full of truth, but they got no grace. Jesus had both. And in an upcoming program, Dave, we're going to look at some stories where sinners were so attracted to Jesus. They sensed that he knew exactly what their sins were. And yet they weren't repelled by him like they were by the Pharisees. Why? Because the truth was always stuck tight to the grace. And the grace was always stuck tight to the truth, both up and running. And again, we needed that for our salvation, to forgive our sins. God knows the truth about us, but the grace is always greater. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one more thing on that phrase uh, from the prologue, the famous, it's verse 14, Uh, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What John literally says there is he pitched his tent in our midst, the the skene in Greek, which points back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. We did a series recently on groundwork on the book of Leviticus. And you may think, Leviticus, is there anything, can anything good come out of Leviticus to make a reference to something later in John chapter one? But yes, Leviticus shows up throughout the New Testament, and there's an allusion to it here because there's a lot about the tabernacle in Leviticus and the fact that now the dwelling place of God is in the midst of our world, and the temple now, which the tabernacle prefigured, is the body of Jesus. We'll consider that in our very next program. So he pitched his tent. He really came. He was with us. He was one of us, and we saw it, says John, and we can testify to it. And one thing we didn't read uh, from John 1, though, is that not everybody saw it. In verse 10, he was in the world. And remember, uh, John had just told us that this word of God made the whole world. So he was in the world he made, John says. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He even came to that which was his own, and they did not receive him. Or as an older translation, they received him not. Right. Uh, yeah. A devastating phrase. He was so human that he didn't look like the Messiah everybody was expecting. Even when he came to his own people, the the people of Israel, the Jews, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, not what they were looking for. And yet John is here to say, no, this is the proper man, the rechte man, as Martin Luther once said, the, the, the right man, and he's the one that we need to save us. And to those who did receive him, John adds, he gave the authority, the power, the right to become children of God. So, yeah, there were some who did spot him, see him, recognize him, accept him, and they became children of God through him. And how that happened is what we'll look at next. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. 
If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And today we're beginning a series on the Gospel of John, seven programs, a symbolic number in John, and we're going to try to hit at least the main themes and passages from this most majestic and deep of all the Gospels. And today we're looking at the first chapter, Scott. And we've looked at most of the prologue, uh, which uh, really runs about the first uh, 18 verses or so. John the Baptist is referred to in there. We already mentioned that by the time John wrote his gospel, uh, late in the first century, there were still a lot of people who thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. You see this in the book of Acts. The the apostles run into some people who say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're we're following the Messiah, but who's this Jesus you're talking about? John the Baptist. We were baptized by John. Yeah, not quite uh, over the finish line there. But John is, of course, the one who bears witness. And uh, in John's gospel, the, so we got the evangelist John who yeah, wrote the gospel and John the Baptist. Keep your John straight yeah, we here. Gotta, uh, we got to uh, be clear there. But John the Baptist does hear what he does in all the gospels, and that is he bears witness. You know, in a lot of medieval paintings of Jesus, there's often a figure on the side with a long bony finger pointing at Jesus, and that's always John the Baptist, because that's his job to point to Jesus. And in John's gospel, he does it in a unique way, because he says— in John one twenty nine, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right, which is the powerful introduction of John's witness. So we move out of the prologue, and John is referred to, John the Baptist is referred to a couple of times there, including parenthetically, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because right. he was before me. Right. That's near the end of the prologue. And it's a tie-in to the Synoptic Gospels where John says, no, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. I'm not the one. He's the one. Uh, Look at him. But then we see him with some of his disciples. Scott, as you mentioned, some of them kind of hung on for years, still calling themselves or thinking themselves as followers of John the Baptist. And they see Jesus approaching, and John shoots out his finger metaphorically and says, look, There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this now, because of uh, many, many, many musical settings, even the Latin of this phrase is known to a lot of people, agnus dei tola peccata mundi, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, stained glass windows. So we think this Lamb of God thing is all over the Bible. Truth is, John 1, and and John the Baptist says it twice in this chapter, John 1 is the only place in the entire Bible where the exact phrase, the Lamb of God, occurs. Even in Revelation, when we get those visions of the Lamb upon the throne, that exact phrase, the Lamb of God, is not there, and it never occurs in the Old Testament either. It looks like it's a phrase that John coined right there on the spot, which could lead you to wonder, what did people hear the first time they heard this, that this had never, ever had been uttered before, the Lamb of God, it might have, uh, lambs aren't 
and sheep aren't the brightest animals in the world. So some people might have thought, well, that's not a nice thing to say. It's like today calling somebody a dumb bunny. But worse yet, Dave, there's that whole association of lamb and sacrifice. Yeah, right. Probably what they would have thought, those first disciples, is not Mary had a little lamb. Right. Its no. fleece was white as snow. Not some cute, cuddly little creature who followed God around uh, the way the lamb followed Mary. No, I think, again, they would have gone to Leviticus and to the daily sacrifices that they saw in the temple where a, a lamb would often be brought and its throat would be cut, its blood applied to the altar, this kind of graphic demonstration of death for sin. Or maybe they would have thought of the Day of Atonement where there were not sheep but goats, young goats who were taken and one of them was sacrificed, and the high priest would bring the blood into the Holy of Holies. The idea of sacrifice, as you said, would have, I think, jumped into their minds. You're exactly right. That's exactly where their minds would go, which would mean this sounded a rather grim note. If this Jesus is going to be a lamb who's going to take away the sin of the world, not just one or two sins, yeah. he might be headed for a bad end. Sacrifice, he's, John's saying he's going to die. He's going to be sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. So, again, uh, we hear that Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, and we think of all these beautiful choral settings by different composers, but it might have landed like a thud mm. the, the day John the Baptist first said it because it was sort of like saying, behold, dead man walking. Yeah, This man is headed for doom, uh, for something good, but he's going to be sacrificed. And as you pointed out, Scott, that exact phrase, Lamb of God, only occurs here in the New Testament. But the word lamb, of course, is used elsewhere and supremely in John's great vision in the book of Revelation, right. in Revelation chapter 5, where he hears this voice that says, there is one who's worthy to open this scroll and explain the world and history and bring it all to its conclusion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he turns and looks, what he sees is a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, as if it had been sacrificed, a lamb with its throat cut. And there, of course, is Jesus in his dual role as both the conqueror and the sacrifice, the victim. And in the New Testament, we see again and again this reference to the fact that Christ died for our sins, or he bore our sins in his body on the tree, as Peter puts it. And that's uh, been a kind of truth that theologians have puzzled over. They've tried to explain for many, many years. Maybe, again, it's a mystery that we won't get to the depths of, but nevertheless, it's true. His death somehow uh, for our sins. And there's one more thing in John 1 as this ministry begins, and here it is uh, from, from John chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse uh, 35. The next day, John the Baptist was there with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, now this is the second time he says it, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Uh, which is a wonderful picture of what we need to do, right? <laughs> this yep. is what disciples do. When they see Jesus, they start following him. That's simply what it means. You may not understand it all. 
You may not completely get it, but you follow Jesus. And I love the fact, as it's often been pointed out, that the first thing Andrew does after he starts following Jesus is go find his brother, Peter. And it is quite amazing that this early in the in the gospel that they think that they have already found the Messiah. Now, they're going to struggle with that, as we said, uh, over time, and it won't end the way they think it's going to end. I mean, Peter will end up denying Jesus when things look like they've gone south. But here it is. We have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. All of that packed into John chapter 1, and we're just getting started. So stay tuned to this series as we continue in this wonderful gospel. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Dave Bast and Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue studying the Gospel of John by looking at the signs Jesus performed in John chapters 2 through 4. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means or tell us what you'd like to hear us discuss on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframemedia.com for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob.